Well, good morning, Grace Point, on this beautiful weekend. Uh, Watertown, good morning to you. We've been praying for you that you've had just a wonderful, worshipful, Christ-filled morning, and we're excited to see what God's going to do in our midst today. Growing up is hard to do, isn't it? I feel like in, in my life, in my journey, there's distinct seasons where they're, they're growth seasons. And, and the hard part about those growth seasons, if you're anything like me, is often those growth seasons involve making bad choices or making mistakes and learning from those things. And I think a common growth season for many of us is, is our teen years, right? Think back to your teenage years. And maybe some of you are thinking, actually, I'd, I'd rather not think back to my teenage years. Uh, but I want to tell you this morning about a, a particular, we'll call it a growth point in my life. Uh, I remember my, my brothers and I have two brothers, one older, one younger. So I'm the well-adjusted middle child who's more mature than the other two, right? Which I forget this is live streamed, so I'll have to tell my brothers not to watch this. Uh, they may not agree with my assessment, but my brothers and I are up late one night. And I don't even know where the conversation came from, but we started talking about this standard household cleaning product that was flammable. And if I remember the conversation, it had something to do with me not believing that it was actually flammable. And so this conversation ended with me, I think I'm 14 or 15, uh, maybe 16 at this time. My older brother and I are in the bathroom in the upstairs of the house that we lived in. And I remember pouring some of this standard household cleaning product in the sink and proceeding to light this on fire. Uh, don't try this at home. It's not recommended. Uh, so I light this on fire, and I notice the flame is a little bit bigger than I thought it would be, right? And it's now scorching the bottom of the medicine cabinet a little bit. And so being the mature, calm, and composed person that I am, I panic, and I grab another cleaning product that was sitting on the table, thinking that somehow this will extinguish the other fire, not thinking about the reality that both are flammable, right? So I spray this other product in the sink, and a large fireball erupts from the bathroom sink, uh, effectively scorching the mirror and the medicine cabinet, and the whole thing extinguishes then in a second. But there's this large plume of smoke now rising from the bathroom, and I watch it go down the hall. And, and mind you, this is about midnight, 12.30 in the morning, and I, and I see this little thing on the ceiling with a blinking light, and I realize I have no time to stop the smoke from reaching the smoke detector. And so about 10 seconds later, the smoke detector starts blaring. And I watch my older brother. He walks calmly into the living room, and he sits down on the couch, waiting for my dad to come out of our, his room. And I, I, do, I do what I think is the wise choice, and I think I'm sticking my brother with all of the blame. And so I go running down the stairs, and I'm like hiding in the family room downstairs, like, Dad won't find me here, right? Like, where am I going? But my assumption is that my brother will take all the blame, right? I've left him up there. And then I had this thought, why is he so calm? And, and, and I hear my parents' door open, and I hear my dad come stomping out, uh, rightly thinking that the house is burning down because he smells smoke, and the fire alarm has just gone off at 12 in the morning. And I hear him ask my older brother, whom I have just left to take all the blame, he says, what's going on? I was the smart one. I ran away. But it was in this moment that I realized you don't become an older brother without gaining some life wisdom. <laughs> and my older brother, who was with me when I lit the sink on fire, he goes, 
I have no idea. He goes, you should ask Aaron. I was like, you've got to be kidding. He, like, bus, here's Aaron. Aaron, meet bus. He just threw, totally threw me under the bus, right? And so my dad comes downstairs, and we had what I'll call a formative conversation, right, about making wise decisions. But what I want you to look at in the, in the story is my brother's response and my response, because I think the way that we responded has similar patterns to the way that some of us engage in communal life. So when you think about community and relationships, they're tough and they're difficult, and sometimes it's hard to live well in community. So this morning, we're going to talk about the heart of the matter and talk about body life and what it is for us to live as a church. Now, when you you look at my interaction in that story, you'll notice that when things got tough and conflicted, I bolted. I'm not going to stand there as things get difficult and, and, and take the blame that was rightly mine. When things got heated, I ran. Now, my, my brother in that story, when things got heated and conflicted, he just backed out and said, I'm going to choose not to get involved. And, and I think the reality is that for many of us in body life, when we think about what it is to function and to live in community, there's some of us who say, I'm going to be in community until things get difficult and then I'm going to peace out. For others of us, we say, you know what, I'm going to be sort of on the fringe of community, and I'm not going to get too involved and invested. And when things get tough, maybe I'll be quick to pack, pass the buck onto somebody else, but I'm not going to get too involved and invested. So I want to talk this morning about why living in community, why body life, as we call it as a church, is so fundamental and why it's important for us to stay involved and invested in body life. In this series that we've called The Heart of the Matter, Pastor Steve has asked two really key questions. The first question he asked about 10 weeks ago, and it was this question, do you want to be well? As he's told the story of the paralytic that Jesus interacts with, and Jesus asks that question, do you want to be well? And for many of us, the common sense response when we think about our own lives is, yes, absolutely, I want to be well. Who wouldn't answer that question with a yes? And then Pastor Steve spent the next seven or eight weeks talking about vices and virtues and how God desires for us to be made well and to live a virtuous life. But then last week, Pastor Steve asked this question, can I actually be made well? And for many of us, we answered the first question, yes, I want to be made well. But then we got to the second question, and that's where we wrestle. I want to be made well, but, but can I actually be made well? I want to add a third question this morning. I want to add this question, why does being made well matter? Why does being made well matter? And I think for many of us, when we think about what it is to be made well, we think, well, I I want to live a right life. I want to live as God calls me to live. I want to be made well so that I'm happier, so that it's a more convenient life, so that my problems are, are more easily navigated. But what I want us to understand this morning is that being made well and and undergoing this process of transformation and redemption that God desires to work in our lives is not just about being more convenient. It's not just about a happier life. No, God desires for us to be made well, and it matters because, number one, God has a deep and rich life that he desires for us to live. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full or to the abundance. And God has this rich life in relationship with him that he desires for us to live out in relationship with Jesus. But the second reason that being made well matters is this. As we are made well, we begin to have a redemptive impact in the lives of other people. 
And, and I realized as I was thinking about this this week, those two questions, do I want to be well and can I actually be made well? I realized as I reflected on those questions, I answered them in individualistic ways. Yes, I want to be made well and I think God can make me well. Why do I want to be made well? And, I, and as I reflected on those things, I answered them all in terms of what I could get out of that. But what I realized this week is those questions about being made well and about being transformed and redeemed by God's grace is not just about me being happier and healthier and having a life that's carefree. No, it's because as we are made well, we begin to have a redemptive, transformative impact in the lives of other people. Richard Rohr, who's a Jesuit priest, he made an, an interesting observation about culture here in America. He says this, he says, it's been acceptable for some time in America to remain what he calls wound identified. What he means by that is he says, we have this tendency in American culture to use one's victimhood, one's identity as one's ticket to sympathy and as one's excuse for not serving. So for some of us, we get to this conversation about, do you want to be made well? And at first we say, yes, I want to be made well. But then that means God begins this process of transformation and redemption and growth and learning. And what we recognize really quick is that sometimes that's a difficult process because to be made well, God has to push into our brokenness and push into our places of woundedness. And I don't know about you, but the places where I am broken and wounded are tender places of hurt. And as God begins to put pressure in those places and bring transformation and redemption, it means that sometimes we have to work through difficult things. And as Richard Rohr says, I think he's right. We, we would sometimes rather remain identified by our wounding and brokenness. And he says this for two reasons. One, we use our wounding and brokenness as a ticket to receive sympathy from others. Secondly, though, he says we use it as an excuse to not get involved. I can't help. I can't serve. I can't be a redemptive presence in the life of this person. I am too broken myself. But Richard Rohr continues, and he says this. He says, but when we look at the example of Jesus, we see in him someone who, who used his wound to redeem the world. And as we look at the example of other believers, we see those who have turned their scars into sacred wounds that liberate both themselves and others. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that being made well fundamentally matters because God has given you a sphere of influence and he is calling you in the midst of the community that you're a part of to have a redemptive presence and impact, which means God has to first do an internal work of restoration and redemption in us. So I want to talk this morning about what it means to be made well. And how that begins to transform and change how we engage in body life and in communal living. So we're going to pick up in Ephesians 2 as we talk about the dynamics of being made well and how that changes how we live in community. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, uh, Paul says this. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature uh, deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And one of the first things that I want us to recognize this morning is that being made well involves being given a new identity. Did, did you notice what Paul says here? He says, you were once dead in your transgressions and sins. He uses the past tense, were. 
He says, but now you were being made alive in Jesus Christ. Once you were a sinner, now you are, are, are not. You have been redeemed. Once you were in, living in death, now you are walking and living in life. In other words, what Paul says is, you are not who you used to be by the grace of God. And with that new sense of identity comes a, a deep sense of new purpose. As Paul continues writing, if we pick up in verse 10, Paul says this. He says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's handiwork, he says, prepared in advance to do good works, which God has already set in motion. And so what we see here is Paul saying, listen, he's, he's writing to a church in the city of Ephesus. He's writing to believers. He's saying, you have been made well by the grace of God. You were once walking in sin and transgression and rebellion, living a life deserving of death. He says, but now you are, have been made well and you are given a new sense of purpose. There are good works that God has prepared in advance for us to be a part of. That the people of God are not just to enjoy God's saving grace and redemptive work in our own lives and say, okay, now I can experience the deep richness of life with Christ. No, Paul says when we step into that new identity, we recognize that with that comes a deep new sense of purpose to go and to be a redemptive presence in, in the lives of other people. As Paul continues writing, he will remind the believers that not only have they been given a new identity that comes with a new sense of purpose, but they are invited into a new sense of community. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says this. He's writing again about the work of Jesus Christ. He says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What he's talking about here is this rift between the Jews and the Gentiles, how Jesus has reconciled them. He says, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, hone in on this. He's saying because of the work that Jesus has done, because of the peace that he brings and the reconciliation and the restoration and the redemption, he says, consequently, as a result of the work of Christ, look at this in verse 19. He says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the people have been given a new identity. They no longer walk in the way of death. They now walk in the way of life. They've been called to a new purpose to go and to, to invest their lives in the calling and the commission that God has given them and recognize that they are invited into a new community. The people of Israel and the Gentiles, those who were, who were chosen by God, the people of Israel and those who were not, often lived in severe conflict with each other. And what Paul says is that the grace and the redemptive and reconciliatory work of Jesus is so powerful that even these two groups of people who were at odds, Jesus was able to destroy that barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between them. And by his death and resurrection, Jesus is able to unite this community of people who were once at odds. And do you notice what Paul goes on to say? He says, 
the words here are all plural. So where Paul uses you, it's, 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 it's you all. So what Paul says, he says, y'all as God's people, as members of his household, y'all are being built into a temple in which God dwells by his spirit. And here's the beautiful, profound truth of the body of Christ. Is that when we come together as a diverse body, and when we live in relationship and fellowship with one another, that relational communal connection of the church becomes a temple that God inhabits by his spirit. When we think church, most of us picture the building, right? We imagine the four walls that we're, we're sitting within right now. We imagine this location. We imagine this physical place. But what Paul says is, he says, it's the, the relational community. As the body of Christ gather, gathers, there God's spirit dwells in a powerful way. Which, by the way, is sometimes people will ask the question, can I just experience God um, in a walk in nature? Can I just experience God in the deer stand by myself and when it's hunting season? Can I just experience God on my own apart from the body of Christ? And yes, I believe that, that God is, is all present, that God is everywhere. You can encounter his presence anywhere. But I believe that when we gather as the body of Christ, we experience the profound presence of God in a unique, deeper, richer way than I can ever encounter on my own apart from the community and fellowship of the body. Don't take my word for it. Take Paul's word for it. He says, when y'all gather, y'all are being built into a temple in which God dwells by his spirit. And by the way, this is remarkably um, kind of offensive language. For, for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, the temple was this physical structure that they built so God could dwell among them. When they built the temple, you had the outer court, which was where the Gentiles and those who were unclean could, could worship. But then you had the, the, the Holy of Holies, the innermost room in the temple. And in the Holy of Holies in the temple was where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant, this was a, a box containing sort of holy relics of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, the top of that was called the mercy seat. And it was called that because that's where the presence of God was thought to dwell among the people of Israel. Now, the problem was, was that the Holy of Holies was in there, and we as common people were out here. And we could not go in there. In fact, only the high priest could go into that most holy place, and he could only go one time a year when he would intercede for our sins. And so in some ways, the temple was a reminder of God's presence among the people, but in other ways, the temple was a stark reminder that we are separated from the God who is in there while we remain out here. If you read the Gospels, there's this moment when Jesus is crucified, when the, the curtain in the temple is torn, and that separation between the Holy of Holies and the people of God is done away with. And now what Paul in his bold language says is not that God res resides in some building somewhere. He says, no, when you gather as a body, as a community, when you come together in fellowship, he says, y'all, that's where the presence and the power of Christ resides. Klein Snodgrass, what a cool name, right? Snodgrass, just sounds smart. He, he, in writing about this passage in Ephesians, he says this, he says, Paul saw the church as outposts of God's kingdom, as prototypes of God's end time community, as witnesses to God's power. He says, for most of us, the church is a place that, that puts on services. 
He says, somehow we must move beyond this and recover a sense of the importance of the church as a place where the purposes of God are embodied and the unity God seeks is practiced. In other words, what Snodgrass is saying, he's saying the church is not just a place where we go and attend a service. He's saying, no, 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 the church is a community of people who live out the culture of heaven. We are a culture of people who are, who are in process of being made well and being made whole, of being given a new identity. And what he's saying is we are an outpost in a broken world called to bear witness to the hope of God that even now breaks forth among us. And as we live out our new identity as God's people brought together as his household, there's a sense in which the world should look at the way that we do life together in community and say there's something different about the way Christians live together. There's something different about the way that they function in community. There's something different about the way that they as a community impact our culture. In fact, Paul pushes this idea further in Ephesians chapter 3. There in verse 7, Paul says this. He says, I became a servant of, of this gospel, this good news that Jesus has sacrificed his life for us. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. He says, although I am less than the least of the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles. This is an aside. By the way, did you notice what Paul says? He, he doesn't say, I'm an apostle. I've somehow got this status and standing. Paul goes, no, no. I, he says, I'm less than the least of all God's people. At, at one time, Paul was a person who oversaw the murder of Christians. Paul is the least likely person that you would say, someday you're going to have a significant role in this movement that God's doing. And yet Paul says, it was the gift of God's grace that he was invited to play a significant role in God's kingdom. And listen, there might be somebody here this morning who thinks like Paul, I am, I am less than the least of all God's people. But the difference, the X factor, is that the gift of God's grace can transform and redeem you, and you might feel like you don't have anything to offer, but when your life encounters God's grace, you can be transformed and redeemed, and God can use someone like Paul, who used to murder Christians, to transform the entire world. Don't count yourself out, because I believe in a God whose grace is big enough to transform and redeem and empower anyone. So Paul continues writing. He says, I'm less than the least of, of the Lord's people, but this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles. He says, and to make plain, verse 9, to everyone the administration of this mystery. He's talking about the gospel here. Which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Look at verse 10. His intent, God's purpose, what God desires to happen, his intent was that now, in this time, through the church, He's not talking about the building. He's not talking about the church as an organization. He's not talking about the church as a denomination. Y'all look to your left and right. This is the church he's talking about. He says his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. God's intent, God's purpose was that right now through the church, through the community of saints built together as a temple that God dwells by his spirit, through this community, God's wisdom and purpose should be made known in the world. And Paul uses this phrase. He says, his intent was that now the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, there, there's two ways that scholars approach this. One is to say this is an entirely uh, spiritual dimension that through the church, God is making known in the heavenly realms these things. But most scholars suggest that where Paul talks about rulers and authorities, he's not just talking about a spiritual world that somehow 
separate from the physical world, what Paul was talking about are the broken social structures and political ideologies that are present in our culture. Are we tracking? Are you with me? So what Paul says, he says God's intention for the church is that right now in the age in which we live, that in the midst of our broken social systems and structures, in the midst of a broken and divided political ideological structure, right in the midst of that, the church and the way they do life together would bear witness to the wisdom of God that there is a new hope-filled way of living. Being made well matters. Because living in body life together as people who are in the process of being made well is part of what it means for us to have a redemptive presence and impact in the world around us. Let me summarize it this way. Our big idea is that we are to be a redeemed community called to righteous living with a renewed sense of purpose. That's the big idea. We're called to be a redeemed community, a people who are in process of being made well living a righteous life with a renewed sense of purpose so that we can have a redemptive impact in the world. So, so what, what does this community look like? When we, when we talk about Christian community, when we talk about body life, as Paul continues writing, he begins to describe and to define the contours of what this communal life looks like. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What what does he mean? He means as God's people who've been brought from death to life, he says, live passionately, live worthy of that calling to be a people who've crossed from death to life, a people who've been redeemed and forgiven. He says, live a life worthy of that calling as a body. Then he begins to describe it. He says in verse two, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In verse 32, at the end of chapter 4, Paul closes out this section on body life by saying this. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And as Paul describes this Christian community, as Paul describes this church, He says it should be a place of humility, of gentleness. It should be a place of patience, of love, of unity, a place where people are kind and compassionate. And he uses this phrase, he says, patient, bearing with one another in love. One of the early church writers by the name of John Chrysostom, he said, patiently bearing with one another in love, he says, is to have a largeness or a generosity of soul where we can deal with the annoyances of another with gentle, loving patience. And so Paul says, this community that we're called to live in, that he calls the church, this community is a community of people who are gentle and humble and patient and kind. It is a community where we we patiently deal with the annoyances of another with gentle, loving kindness. Now, here's the reality is that for many of us, we've had a moment where we have felt disillusioned by church. Maybe you've had a moment where someone has said something or done something or failed to do something that hurt you or wounded you or offended you. 
And we hear all the time culture lob this accusation, well, the church is just full of holier-than-thou hypocrites. And we have this idea that somehow the church is a haven for saints where people have it all together. And so when someone hurts or wounds or offended us, we think you should know better rather than recognizing the church is not a haven for saints who have it all together. It is a hospital for broken people who are pursuing wholeness and wellness in Jesus Christ together. The defining characteristic of the church is not that we have it all together and will never hurt, wound, or offend. The defining characteristic of the church is what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 32. The church is defined by our ability to love and forgive one another. I I hope we didn't gloss over this little phrase that Paul says. He says, forgive one another just as in Christ God forgave you. I I don't know about you, but I really am appreciative of, of Jesus' forgiveness in my life. Scripture tells us that while we were still sinners, in other words, when we were still rebelling against God, telling him, I want nothing to do with you, while we were still in that place, Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sins, offering that fully and freely. Now, the mind-blowing thing that Paul says here, he says, just as you have been forgiven, I want you now to turn and offer that kind of forgiveness to other people. So what I want to tell you this morning in part is this, if you're sitting here right now and you have anger or resentment towards somebody else in this room, in this body, in this community, hear this with love, but you're living in disobedience. You are living out an identity that is not the identity of the people of Christ. We are called to be a humble, patient, compassionate, kind, gentle people who, catch this verse 32 of chapter 4, who forgive just as in Christ God forgave us. As Paul continues writing, he says this in chapter 1, and I think he puts this in concise language for us. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Two things. One, do you find it mind-blowing that in the midst of his discussion on community, Paul says, listen, he says, y'all who are being built into a temple, he says, each of us should follow God's example. And, And I think the church becomes an outpost in a broken culture. The church begins to have redemptive impact when we live out the character that we see in the life of Jesus. When we start to live that out in our community as a church, as a body, people begin to look and say there's something fundamentally different. Paul says, follow the example of God as dearly loved children. And and look at this verse two. And he says, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, just as you see Jesus offering himself in service to others, the call of, of Paul and the call of Christian community is to walk in the way of self-sacrificial love. One of the phrases that stuck out to me in this verse this week as I was uh, preparing this was, Paul says, follow God's examples. Did you catch this phrase, as dearly loved children? I love the kind of confidence that that should instill in us, that the God of all creation looks at you and he says, you are dearly loved. And as you experience my love, would you turn and go and love others with that same kind of love so that they might experience in your life and in your community the kind of love that I have shown you? So here's the dilemma, right? 
If you're like me, I look at this and I go, okay, Paul, like, I see you. I see what you're calling us to. Uh, l- let me use an example. Uh, think about one of your pet peeves. For me, I'll, I'll give you one. I, I hate loud chewing. So if I'm, if I'm eating and, and someone is chewing loud, there's a part of me that like dies inside that I think, I think, Jesus, I know they're dearly loved by you, but right now, the way that they're chewing, I'm really struggling to love this person, right? It just it drives you crazy and it kind of grates on your nerves, right? But Paul says there's this kind of community, and that's a funny example, but there's more serious ones, right, that you can think of. Paul says the kind of Christian community that we're called to is a community where we can bear with the annoyances and faults and flaws of another and do so in a way that's compassionate, kind, and loving, and humble, and gentle. And I look at that in my own little example, and I go, man, I struggle to love that person when they chew loud, let alone when it's something real. And so I look at this and I go, okay, Paul, how is this possible? Is, is this just some great I- ideological idea in the sky? Like, yes, you should love like this, but it's not actually possible Because to me, sometimes in my own life, it looks impossible. I struggle to live that kind of humble life, that compassionate, kind life. But I don't think that this is just an ideal that Paul calls us to. I think it's a reality that we can actually live out as we continue to step into what it means to be made well. And so Ephesians chapter 3, I think, is actually the linchpin of this entire book. Because in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, Paul begins to pray for the church at Ephesus. And I think Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus is the reality that makes it possible to live out this kind of communal life of love and service to one another. Let me read Paul's prayer for you. Ephesians three fourteen. Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family, notice the family metaphor that he's using to talk about community, In heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul says this. He says, I pray that out of his, God's glorious riches, that he would strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Amen. Here's the reality. What Paul says, chapter 1 and 2, he says, you were dead, but you have been made alive. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are the ethical implications of that. Because you've been made alive, live as a unified community. Rules for households in chapter 5. There's an ethical dimension that we live differently because of what Jesus has done. Chapter 3, that prayer that I just read, is the linchpin in the entire thing. Paul says we live differently in community because of this reality. He says, I pray that you would be rooted and established in Christ's love for you. He uses two metaphors there. The first is agricultural. He says, I pray that you'd be rooted. Let Christ's love for you nourish your life of love for one another. The second metaphor is the construction metaphor. That word established is this language of setting down a foundation. He says, let Christ be the foundational thing in your life. And he says, out of that, he says, I pray that he would give you power through his spirit in your inner being and that God would fill you to all the measure of the fullness of Christ. And and here's what happens. As we pursue him, as we give our life over to Jesus and he begins to make us well, 
He's going to push into those areas of brokenness and woundedness, and he's going to work to make us well so that we begin to have a redemptive impact in the lives of other people. And it's not something that we somehow have to work really hard to do. It's about pushing into Jesus. And I pray this week, even as you sense God pushing into areas of your life where you feel weak and broken and wounded, I pray that you would come back to this passage and say, Jesus, I want to be rooted and established in your love for me. Recognizing that as God puts pressure on those wounded, broken places, that he does so as a God who, as Ephesians 5.1 says, loves you dearly and works those things for your good. That we might be a redemptive presence in the world around us. This morning, as a response, we're going to take communion. In Watertown, I'm going to release you guys to Pastor Jeff, and he's going to give you some instructions on, on communion there. And then I'm going to talk through what that looks like for us here in the room.